Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in what used to be known as the global war on terror, but we now call the Long War. Today is Wednesday. I got a very special guest, Seth Bransman. He's previously been a guest on the show, but uh, Seth is in Israel covering the war. Seth is an adjunct fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies, as well as the acting news editor and senior Middle East correspondent and analyst for the Jerusalem Post, as well as a contributor to the Long War Journal. Um, Seth's written two books, one, Drone Wars, Pioneers, Killing Machines, Artificial Intelligence, and the Battle for the Future. I read that one, highly recommend it, as well as After ISIS, America, Iran, and the Struggle for the Middle East. Seth, welcome welcome back to Generation Jihad. Um, you already are welcome at Long War Journal since you're right there almost daily. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. No, it's a, it's a pleasure, Seth. So much to cover. Um, we'll, we'll try and pick the you know three, four, five top issues. Um, I think I want to start today because this seems to be the biggest story coming out of uh, Israel and, and and the region, which is the ceasefire talks. There's a lot of pressure, particularly by the Biden administration, which is facing internal political pressure within the Democratic Party to um, to get a ceasefire, really to get the fighting to stop. Um, what Seth? What what is the mood in Israel, and what do you think the likelihood is that the um, the coalition government led by ben- Benjamin Netanyahu. People forget that he's not the only person making decisions. He has a he has a wartime government in place, so it's not just him that would make this decision. So, what do you, what do you think? What are the odds that the the Netanyahu government is going to accept the terms of a ceasefire has been put out there? And really briefly, in exchange for, I believe they said something like what I last read was a hostage for every day of the ceasefire, an Israeli hostage. And basically, we're going to get one of these 10 to 1 situations where one Israeli hostage is released in turn for uh, in exchange for 10 or so, might be five, might be 10 prisoners. These are Palestinians who've been convicted of terrorism charges. Um, what do you think the prospects of this type of peace deal, or not peace deal, but the ceasefire um, being approved? Well, I mean, it's maybe it's fifty-fifty. I think that I think there is a lot of pressure, as you said. I mean, there's the Ramadan uh, Muslim holiday coming up uh, next month, so I guess in about two weeks. Obviously, the Biden administration says they want it. Uh, you know, Hamas is being hosted by Qatar or Doha. Doha is a major non-you know NATO U.S. ally, so there's some pressure there. In Israel, there's internal you know domestic pressure by uh, you know first of all the families of the hostages. There's about 134 hostages, of which the government, I think, or the IDF has said uh, some 20 or so are, are believed to have been killed. And so that would leave 100 and, um, 105 or 110 or so living. Uh, among those, you know, the most sensitive ones, obviously, are the injured, injured people, older people. Most of those are men that were not released in the first round. And then there's the, the women, which include five women soldiers, I think. So those are mostly very young women. Um, you know, of course, the reports have been, you know, some of them may have been assaulted or abused or what have you. So, you know, the families are urgently demanding they need to release these people because the families are saying, because every day that goes by, you know, every few days there's been, uh, they said, well, someone's been killed. So I think that's where we're heading. It's not clear. It's really touch and go because, you know, Hamas has to deliver the goods. And as you mentioned, the, the whole nature of the deal, having one hostage a day released for around four uh, prisoners or so or 10 or whatever. 
it's not ideal in terms of the optics because it allows Hamas to really squeeze it and allow them to slow play it every day and use it for influence operations. And we've seen them do this before where it's really degrading and humiliating. So I think the government will have to wonder whether they really want to spend a month watching Hamas celebrate this. Yeah, I remember some of those videos coming out. I mean, it was just really horrific. Uh, well, horrific is the wrong word, but very insulting. If I was an Israeli watching, you know, young women and and grandmothers and you know mothers being released in the fashion that they were, um, being forced to you know being sort of pressured to like smile and shake hands and say goodbye to their captors, I I got to tell you if these the Israelis, if there is an agreement, and I, and I just would say this um, to the Israeli government and the Israeli people. Uh, you know, beware of Qataris bearing ceasefires and peace deals. And how do we know? Just ask the Afghan people. Look at look at what the that so-called peace deal led to. You, the Qataris cannot be trusted. The if there is some type of agreement um, on a prisoner exchange and a ceasefire, the I'm sorry, hostage and slash prisoner exchange and a ceasefire, um, the Israelis cannot countenance the Hamas putting on these displays of the releases. This is just absolutely absurd and you, and you nailed it too they they re, hamas and and company they really excel at stringing this out and um you know is it really in the israeli's interest to release one hostage a day you know in that just the visuals absolutely correct you know so we're approaching the um fifth month of war since the the horrific attacks on october 7th in southern israel what is the general mood within the israeli people i know that's a really difficult question to ask but are we seeing the same resolve we saw months, you know, the opening days or, or several months ago? And, and, and in addition, has the, is the view of the average Israeli changed um, towards the United States? Is the United States viewed as being a major supporter or as its dabblings with Hamas and Qatar um, caused a, an erosion of an opinion? Right. Well, I just said it's difficult. Difficult to judge the whole, you know, the huge number of people and the big, big political spectrum you have here. But I would say that, you know, after October, you know, seventh, let's say the first few days or weeks was a lot of shock and a lot of, you know, there was a lot of sense of what, what, you know, how has this happened? You know, has the army kind of a bad? How do they abandon the border? Why intelligence was so bad? And if the intelligence doesn't know about Hamas, what's packing up in Hezbollah or what? What other worse things are going to happen? I think, that, but when the when the Hezbollah war didn't start and people started to get things together, I mean, I think there was, you know, three hundred fifty thousand people called up to reserve duty. So then there was a sense of national mission. Um, there was a sense of I don't know if you're probably familiar with people listeners are familiar with the term from the First World War, lions led by donkeys, which portrays the average you know doughboy and grunts going to war as you know those people are great. I'm not entirely sure about who's in charge of them, but we we like we like the soldiers, you know. And I think Israel, you know, regardless, some people on the political spectrum certainly are very pro, you know, Netanyahu. So certainly, the army as an institution is one that is the last institution in Israel that is still considered very highly trusted. So therefore, I think there was a sense that you know, regardless of how bad things are, you know, everyone is unified in terms of the war the war against Hamas, and there is that national unity. Now, as you said, five months into it. There is still a national unity. I think even though there are certainly protests, um, you know, for the hostages and some of the people on the right view those people protesting as the left in the sense of the people that were protesting prior against Netanyahu's government for judicial reforms. They say 
well, that's just been picked up now, and those people have kind of glommed on the protest as the, the the hostage family. So there's definitely there are definitely divisions that are emerging. I think now they say that the defense minister has just given a speech just now where he's called for the ultra orthodox in Israel to be drafted to the army. I mean, the orthodox are not drafted, and you know you see a war with huge numbers of uh, casualties, at least in terms of Israel's last twenty years of warfare, and you have whole segments of society who just don't go. So that's certainly a controversial issue. But I would say that there's one thing that just happened yesterday, which was municipal elections. Um, the municipalities in Israel all voted in the, in, the elect, in the municipal elections in Israel. I think turnout was like a record low or was very low. And I would say low turnout tells you tells you bad things about a society. It says that a lot of people are uh, complacent, apathetic, or they don't believe in the system. Um, and I think, you know, one could wonder then, is that a quiet protest vote of lots of people saying, you know what? I don't entirely believe in this system after October 7th. And I think there you have to say to yourself, the high turnout in the municipal elections, what was the highest demographic? The ultra-Orthodox, um, which is, again, a sector that's not in the army and is sometimes seen as not part of the mainstream in terms of the national unity issues. So, you know, we might, what might be is happening in Israeli society is a lot of quiet, where they say, um, still waters run deep or what have you. A lot of things that are a lot of things that are bubbling deep, deep down. The surface, everything is kind of quiet, kind of, you know, keep calm, carry on, don't panic. We'll see, we'll see what happens. You know, we're we're winning. I mean, there is a sense, I think, people want to believe that the operation has been successful, but they want the hostages back. They want the government, the government promised them there will not be Hamas when this is over. And I think a lot of people are wondering, well, it's still there. So eventually there's a denouement that comes where it's like, wait, this didn't happen. But is it at six months of war or a year? When when do they get to that? Yeah. Has the government been clear about the length of time that they believe that this operation to eliminate Hamas would take? Or has that been nebulous? I think in the beginning, everyone said it will take a long time. And then the, That's what I what recall. Do you, Seth, what, yeah. what do you mean a long time? And then people would say, well, well then people would say, well, month. And then some people said years. And pe- that would people would raise their eyebrows and say, well, well, years? I mean. Really? Years? I mean, because that means up until the next elections in Israel. I mean, as people have been saying, listen, once the war winds down, we need to have elections. And so this is unacceptable. What's happened. There's another side to this. The government also said they're not going to investigate the, the, the failures of October 7th until the war is over. Well, if it, if it goes on for years, you ask yourself, well, wait a sec. I don't get it. I mean, doesn't the evidence kind of disappear after years? If you want to interview, a, a let's say, a battalion commander about what happened on October 7th, if that commander now spent two years fighting, what is he going to remember? I mean, he could possibly like, die during fighting. Yeah, right. I mean, we just, there was just a platoon or another commander from one of the key Givati units that died recently. I mean, yeah. So you're losing all these people. It doesn't make sense. It totally, it's totally not logical. So like, I think that the real, the real story was six months or up to a year. So not, not years, but not, but not just quote several months. Like I think the sense was six months to a year. The question is, as Gallant, the defense minister always said, this is in phases. So, Phase one was a bombing campaign. Phase two was a heavy, massive, intense campaign of you know thousands of strike missions. And then phase three was sort of a bit of a pause and then winding down and low intensity, then probably counterinsurgency. So, you know, you could call it like the surge or something in Iraq, some sort of kind of graph it like that or something. And really quickly, has there any has opinion of the United States? Is there more wariness given the Biden administration's um, genuflecting to Hamas and, and Qatar? 
It's very hard to measure that. I haven't seen studies on it or surveys. I can only provide one you know, anecdotal evidence, which I was sitting with someone yesterday who was a, who was certainly a very mainstream Israeli who works as a poll monitor and totally normal mainstream person. And we were talking about the United States and, and Israel and, and pressure and whether they can be relied on and stuff. And he said, well, I don't I don't trust the United States. You know, so I think that there's a lot of people that are it's not about I don't think it's about Biden. It's about it's about the, the, the whole last 15, 20 years of. Of of different administrations doing totally taking totally different tacks. Like, let's do the Iran deal. Oh wait, how about we'll recognize the Golan Heights as part of Israel? Oh wait, let's say the Golan Heights are not part of Israel. Wait, settlements are good. Settlements are bad. I mean, it's very. I think people have just got to the point. I mean, there's some people on the political spectrum who anyway were let's say very skeptical of the U.S. and some people that are super super, you know, pro Europe and pro U.S. and say, listen, Israel cannot ever. You know, criticize its Western allies because Israel is just a Western country, and we—that's just where Israel is. It, it just cannot afford that. So, but I, I think there's a there is a general sense, probably among the average public, that you know the U.S. is a great, wonderful ally and a wonderful country, but it's not entirely always clear what its interests are, and certainly its interests don't always align. When it says ceasefire, well, Israel's going to keep fighting until Israel gets its goals met, and the fact that the U.S. closest ally in the region, you know, Doha and Qatar, is hosting Hamas is. I think probably lots of sensible people think that's heavily problematic. And has there been any um, observations about the polling that's occurred where a lot of the significant percentages, like 20 to 30 percent of American, I believe they were in the 18 to 25 range where, uh, you know, we're saying the Holocaust is a, uh, you know, is a myth and, uh, you know, Israelis or Jews are oppressor class, things like that. Is that a, a concern or is, or is that not even being noticed? In Israel, I, I don't know if we have time to notice it and drill down into that. I think there's a cer- there's certainly a sense that that you know the far left and extremists in the in the West, or maybe some and also sometimes on the far right, you know, are just that's where you find anti-Semitism, and that's where you find Holocaust denial and things, and and that's kind of always been there. And if it got worse, it got worse. But Israel can't change. I mean, Israel Israel can't abolish itself to make those people happy. So that I think there's a general sense of like. You know that does, those people just you have to discount them. And if they if they say well there's more of them, well okay. I mean I, don't think, I think Israelis just figure they can't do anything about that. And they what do they they can't change they can't change their whole country or basically what those people want is for them to disappear. Well, most people won't accept that. So yeah, if those numbers were in you know the single digits, I you know my concern would be pretty low. But the, those numbers are they're creeping up there. And given the state of American education and what's being taught and not taught. Um, I just expect it to get worse. That's a, this, that's one of the things that really long term is my concern for the support of Israel. Isn't you know, uh, in particular administration or feckless policy. Those things happen, and yeah, you're absolutely correct. Our U.S. policy uh, vis-a-vis Israel has been, and and the Middle East, right? We got a we got a, a JPCOA with Iran. Oh, we revoke it. Um, we move the capital to Jerusalem. Then we tell you know all this. It's it it must be maddening, but. What really concerns me is that that erosion of support, you know, 30, 20 to 30 percent. We're not in the margins anymore. We're talking about, you know, a significant portion of um, the U.S. population. And I have to wonder what percentage of them are in the foreign policy field. Right. You know, in the field that's going to influence places like the State Department. We already have seen a lot of problems, but we won't we'll move on to more tactical issues now. I'm just curious if that if that's something that's even been noticed um, in Israel. And like you said, I suspect you're right. He's got too many fish to fry. You know, what are we doing with Hamas? What are we doing with Hezbollah? But uh, let's turn to Hezbollah. You'd mentioned that there was 
there's been some significant attacks um, on both sides of the border, the Lebanese-Israeli border. Um, you noted yesterday that Hezbollah is escalating its attacks um, lately. Talk talk about this. What does this mean? Do you, we believe that uh, this simmering, low-level war, um, war along the border, which, by the way, one single attack would have been responded violently, you know, just prior on October sixth and before. Um, and now this has become commonplace. It's become, as Joe uh, Trusman says, the new normal is just a, you know, a series of daily attacks along the Israel-Lebanese border. Yes, right. So it's it's very it is unprecedented, and the, and the ability of Hezbollah to kind of get away with this and and have this impunity, you know, was because Hezbollah kind of exploited the, the Hamas attack to then jump in and support Hamas on October eighth, prodded by the Iranians probably to open the second front. And Hezbollah has decided to do these kind of smaller attacks along the border and not, you know, they understand there's a red line somewhere. But I think there is a strange kind of dance that's taking place, a kind of proportion dance. And what that means is Hezbollah has been attacking along the border with missiles, rockets, uh, anti-tank missiles, drones. And it's a large number of attacks over three up until January. It was around uh, you know, several thousand, 2,000 rockets and hundreds of anti-tank missiles. They damaged 500 homes almost, more buildings, and they killed a bit more, bit more than a dozen pe- people, including several soldiers. Now, after that, from January to February or so, you know, they've continued. And Israel has continued to strike back. So Israel has struck more than a 1,000 targets in Lebanon. Um, so you do the math. You can understand that we're talking really what is a kind of tit for tat. But Israel pays a huge price because 80,000 people had to be evacuated from these communities. Again, totally unprecedented in Israel's history. No country evacuates every person on the border within 10 miles of the border or something. I mean, imagine America doing that. You're talking about evacuating millions of people or something because of some rocket fire from cartels or something. I mean, no one would, no one would accept that, obviously. So what Israel has done is totally unacceptable, I think, from most countries' points of view. But Israel felt it has to do that because it has to concentrate on Gaza and doesn't. And the northern residents were saying, you can't abandon us like the people next to Gaza were. So that's what happened. In the last several days, this escalation has grown. And I think it grew partly because everyone thinks there's going to be a ceasefire down there in Gaza. And so what Hezbollah and, and maybe Israel also is thinking, well, let's get in a few licks before the ceasefire. As we all know, that can become a huge explosion. And I'll just give you a quick details of what happened then. So on Sunday, the 25th, Israel's uh, defense minister, Galan, went to the north, to Northern Command. He said, even if there's a ceasefire, we will continue to increase the attacks on Hezbollah. Now, that's important because in the last pause in the fighting in November, Hezbollah had basically stopped attacking because Hezbollah it kind of got dragged into this war a bit and didn't really want to recuperate a bit. They've lost, you know, now hundreds of hundreds of their terrorists. So when Galan said that, the next day there was escalation. The Hezbollah fired surface-to-air missiles at, at Israeli and Israeli drone. Well, they've done that before, but they downed the drone. And Israel ha- Israel also used uh, David's slinging medium-range interceptor to go after one of these uh, missiles. So that in itself was a big escalation, even though, as some people said, yeah, but they fought, fired the missiles before. Right, but the missile didn't always connect. When, when it connects, then it's a big deal. So uh, in retaliation for that, Israel carried out a bunch of strikes deep, deep in northern Lebanon, I think about 100 kilometers from the border, in a place called Baalbek. And that that obviously was a target bank that Israel was waiting to buy for an excuse to strike. And Israel said, okay, now we've got an excuse to do it. And the next day, then Hezbollah fired missiles at uh, a sensitive site on Mount Moron in the north, which is called an air traffic control site. It was an IDF, IDF facility. And the IDF admitted that it was this facility was attacked and admitted that uh, I think one rocket hit it. So 
Hezbollah has done that before, but it's a big message to Israel, which is basically the message is Hezbollah is saying, we know where your sensitive sites are. If you if you mess around, you know, we'll just we'll fire hundreds of rockets at it until we get through your air defenses, because, you know, air defenses have a 90 percent success rate or something. If you fire enough, you'll get through. So uh, it's a very dangerous tit for tat. There seems to be a proportional element to it, which is but the proportion is growing. Uh, People are not dying generally, although a few Hezbollah commanders have, have met their end at the, at the end of a missile. But um, I think the big question mark is where does it go if if there's a ceasefire in Gaza and if Hezbollah feels that Israel keeps attacking and says, wait, you've changed the rules of the game. We're, we're going to do we're going to change the rules, too. So that's where we are. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about the rules of the game, it's, it's almost the rules used to be. Hezbollah launches an attack. The Israelis respond overwhelmingly. Now it's, as you noted, tit for tat. And that's become the new normal. I think that's a really dangerous thing for the Israelis because then there'll be pressure on the Israelis to respond proportionately and, um, you know, to go into that tit for tat mode. And I don't think that's something that Israel, um, they can't play that game. And, you know, another thing you noted, I mean, that, those, that border has been evacuated for what? It's coming up on five months now. You know, that's that's a significant strain on the that there has to be some significant war weariness coming from that aspect, you know, and, and uh, of the population. And um, the longer that the Israelis delay this operation in the north, which I think is is important. And um, the I think the bigger problems they're going to have both locally and inter- particularly from the international community, because once that once the, the rules are redefined for Israel, it's always redefined in a way that Israel comes out the loser, comes out on the losing end. Um, but let's, uh, let's move on to, uh, to Gaza. Um, the Israeli military is waiting to launch its offensive in Rafa. That is the large city along the border with Egypt. You know, I'm going to, I talked to Joe Trusman in our last podcast about this, and I'm really curious about your opinion on this theory. I think the Israelis made a significant mistake I think it made a strategic error here in their operation in Gaza. I would have launched my attack in Rafa first. I would have closed off that border with Egypt because the eastern and northern border of Gaza, that borders with Israel. Israel can control that border. The western border is along the Mediterranean Sea. The Israeli Navy can control that border. But the border with Egypt is one where we know there's tunnels running back and forth. So I would have ensured that the, that that exit point to Egypt was shut down immediately. And I would have done it. That would have been my opening stage and then work to segment Gaza um, and to and partition it. Right. And go and do your operations. But the Israelis, they 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 did this backwards. And what do you think? Did, did they make a mistake here? Um, and if so, what, what do you think the reasoning for the Israelis to approach it from north to south rather than south to north. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree. I think that if you want a decisive knockout win against an enemy like Hamas, which has thrived on controlling access to Gaza for 15 years and basically stealing or, or having a weird mafia-like partnership with the aid that goes in, in which Hamas steals a bit of it and then uses it for things like tunnels. So, And so I think, yeah, in order to cut off, you know, that the kind of where the mafia gets all its money from is you go in and just you should cut it off at the where it starts. So it would have made sense to go in heavy along the border, but obviously there was a sensitivity with Egypt. And I assume there was another sensitivity of if you cut off the border, then Israel becomes responsible for all these two million people. 
Then Israel becomes then the one that has to deliver all the food and stuff, which apparently Israel didn't want to get in the business of being, you know, nation-building humanitarian aid person. It, it just wanted to wage a military-only campaign, military-only, no civilians. And in order to do that, what they decided to do was, as you said, the opposite way. Let's move the civilians bit by bit by bit south by dropping leaflets and making millions of calls. Um, and then, when, and then you, so you move them out of a neighborhood bit by bit. And then you go in with the with the armor and APCs and and all the technology that Israel Israel has a lot of you know AI and all this tech, and that way you can you know reduce the number of casualties apparently, because driving into Rafah in the beginning of the war would put the army sitting basically across a border and sitting across you know half a million civilians, which they didn't apparently want to do. So they chose that other that other way of this very very clean type of war in their view, which is. Anyone that's on the battlefield still is a combat because because everyone had been told to evacuate, and that they thought that would work better. Uh, again, it also apparently they thought would give them leverage to turn up the pressure slowly by first cutting off Gaza City and and, and kind of doing this, and then slowly going to southern Gaza bit by bit, so that you can always turn the pressure by saying, well, if you don't release more hostages, okay, we go into this neighborhood. The problem is that. There was a self-fulfilling prophecy with that, which is that on November 24th, they got the first hostage deal. And everyone said, you see, the pressure campaign is working. Ah, but then there was then and then there was no more deals for what for a whole plethora of reasons. But the problem is that they openly said, okay, now we're gonna do this pressure campaign. Well, Hamas can read it also. And they said, okay, we'll we'll just move all of our the hostages to Rafa and we'll move 80% of our fighters that are left to Rafa, whatever. I mean. They only have six or seven battalions left, but they all moved. They all ran away, ran away down there like rats fleeing a sinking ship or whatever. But they're all sitting there now, and they're basically calling Israel's bluff because they're saying, "Hey, we've now brought all the million and a half Palestinians here to Rafah. You can't come in to Rafah because your way of fighting war is that you want no civilians there. Well, we've got the civilian shields now, and we're not going to let them leave, and we're holding on to the spigot of international aid. So we can, by the way, if you're Hamas." Can create a humanitarian crisis by just not letting the aid trucks come in. Then people start starving. Then you have to stop the war. And that's exactly the game they're playing. And that's why, as we started this whole conversation, it still looks like they're almost dictating the terms of these hostage deals. And it's a very, very dangerous thing after five months of war, in which supposedly, tactically, Israel's winning, but strategically, big question mark. That's, I, I concur. That's it's the strategic, it's the time. It's an excellent point. And, you know, Look, if Israel wants to go into Rafah and fight it, a civilian, you know, without civilians in the area, they're going to have to allow those civilians to filter up north. And then the Israelis would still be able, responsible for providing aid and whatnot. So they, they put themselves in the same situation, um, except it's five months after the attack. International support has decreased and political pressure on Israel has increased, external political pressure. I, you know, that this is again, this is why I would have taken Rafa and shut that border down, but it dug a moat 400 feet deep and said, go ahead and tunnel through water if you can. Um, and, you know, and started from there. The Israel, I, I really think this was a big mistake. I think that the Israelis thinking that they can fight this war, you know, on their own terms and be immune from, you know, political uh, criticism externally is just, they just have to fight the war they got to fight. And uh, I just don't like the Israelis just haven't learned this lesson. 
um, after decades and decades of dealing with the Palestinians. So any, any thoughts on that before we move on to our last topic? Well, we have to remember, uh, the question of learning curve is very important here. The entire you know, general staff of Israel, you know, everyone from a brigade commander up, maybe even lower than that, battalion up, but anyway, their experience fighting wars, unfortunately, is the 1990s and 2000. As someone who's an expert as you are, I mean, in you know, long wars and counterterrorism and what happened in Afghanistan and Iraq, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of an issue when the experience of large numbers of commanders in Israel has been never really winning a war, but fighting lots of small wars in Gaza in which you pat yourself on the back afterward and you say, well, we sort of won because we, we well, we took out, you know, 567 targets and we destroyed a lot of stuff. So, you know, and we only lost one soldier. So that's a win, right? I mean, and it's like, okay, but what, what did you, what is the goal? Where is, what is the win? Like, what is the decisive win? Where do you define victory? And if you're, and if you're never had a victory, but you have lots of wins, I think, and then someone tells you, wait, it's like, now you have to fight a war with 300,000 soldiers in your, and nine divisions under your command. It's like the American army that, you know, had to, was sent into the first months of the Civil War, right? I mean, those guys, those guys had been fighting literally Indian wars or something, right, since the Mexican War. They had no experience of fighting um, the massive battles they were about to be thrown into of half a you know, million men or a, or a quarter of a million men on a field of battle. And we know what happened. Huge numbers of people got massacred because of it. It took them four years to find General Grant to finally win the thing. So we, history tells us exactly what happened. Um, that's, I'm sorry, that's just my point. It's important to look at who, who the people running the war are, for better or for good. Their experience plays a lot into this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, it's, you, you described Iraq, you described Afghanistan post-invasion, right? We won all these series of running battles, well, mostly, um, against the Taliban and then lost the war because we didn't have, we didn't really understand how to fight wars. You know, I, I one of the things I don't want to get to you know, off, off topic here, but it's, you could fight these smaller wars and extend them out, but I think it has a more debilitating effect on society and on your ability to, you know, to come to a conclusion. If these wars drag on, if they're indecisive, you destroy societies, um, you just, you create animosity and you never achieve victory. So you lose political, domestic political support. And then eventually, you know, the international community turns on you. This is where I say the Israelis needed to, you know, go in, go hard and fight this war on their terms and get it over with. If, this, if, if they would have launched a crushing attack on Hamas and the war was over in three months and Hamas was defeated. No. Is that possible? I can't sit here and tell you. I would have, again, I, there's a lot of things I would have done differently, but that's neither here nor there. That would have been more advantageous for both the Israelis and for the Palestinians who, who are in Gaza. Because this war isn't continuing, um, but the longer it's drug out, the the more I think there's just there's certain it's immoral to fight wars the way we have been the U.S. the way Israel has been fighting these wars. They're well intentioned, but the 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 road to hell is paved with well with good intentions. Um, the intentions are limit civilian casualties and et cetera, et cetera. Except as you extend wars, you can increase civilian casualties um, because of the length of war and the the nature of the fighting. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox on that one and, and ask you, you know, unless you have any thoughts on that, Seth, but uh, I wanted to quickly, uh, you know, discuss the Israeli Navy's role in this as well. Oh, well, just briefly, I mean, I think it's entirely correct. I mean, what, what the statistics or data tells us from the Hamas run health ministry, but I think Israel has sort of confirmed to some extent, some of it, uh, you know, 30,000 people have been killed in Gaza. And even if it's true that 10,000 of them are combatants, 
that's still 20,000 civilians. And uh, and people can run the numbers however they want and say, yes, but in Mosul, it was one combatant for every two civilians, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the toll has been immense. In Gaza, the destruction is immense. And the toll in Israel is unprecedented. Israel has fought the most intense, difficult, awful war of its entire history with more people evacuated, more civilian casualties than ever in its history. So, yeah, I mean, it, what about a decisive campaign on October 8th rather than a, the campaign that was was launched? Maybe maybe there would have been a lot dead in a short period of time, but in a long period of time, perhaps less. I don't know. But I. You never, we can't, you can, it's always easy to do money, money, quarterback, whatever, but, but I don't, but I think, I think that you have a good point. Long, slow, depressing wars and a trickle of debt is probably much more traumatic sometimes than a very quick, awful, awful war that is less traumatic. And let's talk about the Navy. Um, yeah. Did you have a yeah, tell us who, me? I talk about <laughs> you wrote a great article about this. Tell us, tell us about your experiences with going out with the Israeli Navy. So the Israeli Navy is uh, historically very small in terms of the Israel doesn't Israel's not a naval power. It doesn't have a, it's not the United Kingdom or what have you, but um, it's always had a navy. It still has a navy. It has several submarines. It has uh, a new four Corvette uh, Corvettes uh, ships, uh, the SAR-6 class, uh, which are super high tech, which are supposed to defend the territorial or extraterritorial waters off the coast. And then it has these Devora class patrol boats. Uh, squadrons of them that are basically for patrolling very close to the coastline. So I had a chance to go out with the one of these units, uh, the 916 squadron, which is based in Ashdod in southern Israel. And that that's a patrol boat that is, uh, you know, 100 or 200 feet long, and it has a main gun and a gun on the back and then several machine guns on the side. And we went out at night and did some target practice, but the boats have been very important in terms of Israel's ability to basically use them to do close combat along the shore. And so on October 7th and 8th, you know, they were used to help uh, you know, eliminate and neutralize terrorists that were basically flooding into Israel. And then, as they told it, they saw the terrorists going back to Gaza with bodies of uh, hostages, uh, dead bodies, I guess. And they and they were and they're trying to kidnap, you know, corpses and they uh, eliminated them. So they played a big role. And then after that, they brought down some guys from the Armored Corps and talked to them and learned about so that they could be prepared for when the Armored Corps went into Gaza. And then they basically sat off the shoreline and helped the, the guys on the guys on the beach as the guys were going south. The Navy would move along with them, you know, battalion or the battalion with the squadron, and they would help them uh, take out targets that they could see from the from the water. So it's the Navy has played uh, a very important role in this war, bigger than any war in the past, I think, in terms of using ships to do uh, like, I guess you call it littoral combat or whatever, you know, coastal you know, close close support from the from the naval gunners. Um, it's a very unique and important role for the Israeli Navy. And I think it's not actually a role they really had prepared that much for. So luckily, they had a bit of time to to coordinate. And I think everyone I think everyone's been pretty happy with the ability of the Navy to play such an important role, one that it hadn't necessarily envisioned for itself. And and apparently, conduct you know carry out a lot of important strike missions along the coastline and neutralize these naval com- uh, Hamas has its own like frogmen and commandos or whatever. So basically, to to get rid of most of that threat. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I imagine the traditional role of the Israeli Navy would have been sort of smuggling interdiction and you know coastal defense, right? Um, that you know, so it's it's interesting to see how units evolve over time. Uh, the, you, I um, you as you were talking about your your embed with the Israeli Navy when I was in Iraq in it was two thousand and five. I was at the Haditha Dam, and Lake Haditha is actually quite large and quite beautiful. And the Marines had a small patrol boot, boat unit out there. And they needed to test out the um, the mini guns on there, so they took me for a ride. And so, yeah, you gave you gave me a little flashback there, uh, Seth, and I appreciate that. But I do recall I um, when I was in Israel the first time I went there in 2007, stayed at a hotel in um, Tel Aviv, and 
the um, had a view to the ocean. And I remember seeing those patrol boats going back and forth up the coast several times a day. You see them at dusk, you'd see them at dawn. And um, so it's it's interesting to know that they've uh, they've evolved their tactics and they're supportive of the, the fight against Hamas. Anything else before we depart today, Seth? No, it's all good. Well, look, thanks for joining us today. It's a real pleasure talking with you. We'll get you back on the program real soon. Great. Thank you. Seth, you take care. Be safe out there when you're covering this war. And thanks again for everyone listening to today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you can listen to us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Please subscribe to Generation Jihad and leave us a review, preferably a positive one, but only if we earned it. Thanks again, and we'll see you all again real soon.